0: This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore how virtue can be communicated in the 21st century. We look at a 15-year correspondence between an eminent theologian and a young child when we talk to Stanley Hauerwas about his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Stanley Hauerwas. He's the Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law at Duke University. His work cuts across disciplinary lines as he is in conversation with systematic theology, philosophical theology and ethics, political theory, as well as the philosophy of social science and medical ethics. He was named America's Best Theologian by Time Magazine in 2001. Also in 2001, he delivered the prestigious Gifford Lectures at St. Andrews in Scotland, the first American to do so in over 40 years. His book, A Community of Character, Toward a Constructive Christian Social Ethic, was selected as one of the 100 best and most important books on religion in the 20th century. Today we'll be discussing a new book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson*, which, as the name implies, is a collection of correspondence written to a growing child, over the course of 16 years. Stanley Hauerwas, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's good to be here. So this book is a collection of annual letters to a young child named Lawrence Wells, and he goes by the name Lori. He was born in 2002, and a few months later, in October, he was baptized. You began writing to him then and have continued each year since, but let's back up a couple of steps. What was the relationship you had with Lori's parents, and what led them to ask you to be Laurie's godfather?
1: I originally got to know Sam Wells because he wrote his dissertation on my work at the University of Durham in England. When we first met, I tried to talk him into writing on John Howard Yoder rather than me, but he was rather adamant that he wanted to write on me. So I got to know him through several meetings that way, and we became close friends. I mean, his book makes me better than I am. Then we would visit from time to time when Paul, and my wife, and I would go to England, and he was on an estate in Norwich, England. Through those interactions, we became close friends. And when Joe, who is also an Episcopal priest, now a bishop, and he had Laurie, they asked me to be one of the godfathers. And I said, well, I'm honored to do it, and I'd be glad to do it, but I never know what to do as a Godfather. I mean, you say, take God seriously. I mean, how do you do it? And Sam, being Sam, said, I'll give you an exercise. Every year at the anniversary of his baptism, you're to write a letter commending a virtue. So that's what I started doing. I originally, when he had at his baptism, I wasn't able to be there. It was in England. I wrote an extended reflection about baptism, P by Bonhoeffer's letter on baptism to Bepke uh, when Bonhoeffer was in prison. And then I just kept up trying to do it each year, and I had not originally thought about turning it into a book at all. But as they developed, Sam suggested increasingly that this might want to be done for a wider public, and you have the result.
0: Well, and let me ask you then, in your understanding, what is a godparent supposed to be doing in the Christian tradition? I mean, technically speaking, what does a godparent do in terms of the role and the goals of that kind of relationship?
1: It's interesting that In the introduction, Sam recalls an article I wrote years ago on gossip, and gossip comes from the role that gossip had at baptism in England, that the gossip was to tell the stories of the faith to the baptized. The gossip was to tell the stories of the baptized to the uh, people of faith, for they would know how this baptized person was, increasing in the faith. So the godparent is a mediator between the community of faith and the baptized for the baptized growth for the
0: good of the whole church. And so that role... Of the and in, you mentioned uh, Samuel Wells's introduction, where he mentions your article on gossip, and you you take it back to the phrase god sib. So I want to take a moment because in more recent Christian thought, gossiping and the gossip that's not a good thing. But you're saying that the original meaning of it was a very wholesome thing. This mediator between the baptized and the community. Am I am I understanding that correctly?
1: That's why right. it's interesting how it got associated with women women who were present to another lady who was having a child were called gossips because they were to be trusted not to report about what the woman undergoing birth might say given the pain that she may have been going through. It's interesting, therefore, that women got associated with gossip, and men probably gossip more than women.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you've talked about how you understand the traditional role of the godparent as a mediator and this original notion of gossip, but how did you understand this responsibility when Samuel Wells asked you to take on this responsibility for his young son, Laurie, What traditional role did you want to fulfill, and was there anything that you thought to add to or remove from that traditional role?
1: I think what I primarily understood was my duty as a godparent was to be present to Laurie as he aged. I never tried to say, Laurie, you need to know this. I did things like take him to a ball game, because as someone that was going to be raised in England, he needed to know about American baseball. I tried to be present birthdays, that kind of thing, but I didn't think my job was to say, you need to believe in God. I mean, he here he had a mother and a father who are priests, a mother who's now a bishop. I think he's surrounded with as much Christianity as he can probably stand as a young person, and so uh, i uh, I tried and tried to be available for any um,
0: interaction that he might desire. Well, it occurred to me as I was reading the book that you 've been deeply mm-hmm. influenced by the Mennonite tradition, and that tradition is anabaptist they don 't believe in baptizing young children yet in this project you began writing these letters on the occasion of Laurie's infant baptism, and you've been continuing to write each year on the anniversary of that baptism. I just wondered, did that ever bring up hesitation or conflict for you, given the intellectual connection you feel to the Mennonites?
1: Not particularly in relationship to Laurie's baptism, but it has certainly always been an issue that I've never been able to make up my mind about. I've always had the view that it is better to have views and arguments and I've never been able to decide what I think about the baptism of infants. It is not infant baptism. If it's baptism, it's baptism. And so my general view on it has really been shaped by the question, do you baptize the mentally disabled? And I certainly think you do. And if you baptize mentally disabled, then why shouldn't you baptize the young? I was told by Anabaptist that Anabaptist rejection of early baptism wasn't that you had to know what was being done to you, but rather that baptism made you part of the community Open to fraternal correction? And could young people be open to fraternal correction? I think the answer to that is yes. And so I agree with my church's commitment to baptize the young. At the Church of the Holy Family, where my wife and I are communicants, my wife is an ordained Methodist minister assigned to holy family by her bishop, and the Anglican bishop uh, supports that. Uh, Our baptismal is a cross, and we immerse. And I don't think if you saw infants immersed in the cross, you would have any question about its legitimacy.
0: Thank you for taking the time to explore that with me, and I'm especially struck by the touchstone for you about baptizing the mentally infirm or the those that are not in their full faculty. And if I understand that correctly, it's because you don't necessarily see a need for intellectual assent for the baptism to work. I, am I hearing that correctly? That's right. Yes. That's right.
1: I mean, the idea that you have to know what's happening to you to be baptized, did you know what was happening to you when you were baptized? I mean, did I know what? Even if I were 30... But I've really known what was happening. I doubt it. So it's an ongoing, life-changing event.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his work and career, as well as his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. Dr. Hauerwas, you've chosen in each of these letters to focus on explaining a virtue. And so I'm curious, at the outset of this relationship, did you plan out the order in which you deal with each of these virtues in turn, year to year? What were you thinking about this question of structure at the start of this correspondence?
1: Uh, No, I didn't plan it out. I had the idea that I tried to stay true to throughout the book and throughout the choice of the various virtues of choosing a virtue that I thought would be appropriate to his age. So I started, for example, with kindness because children are cruel, and that I thought how you learn to be kind, that is, that you don't pull the dog's tail, you pet the dog, and that in the process, you learn gestures of kindness, which hopefully will be relevant to other aspects of your life. So I tried to think about how a virtue was going to be a way of thinking through the challenges of what I was facing at that age. The second virtue, truthfulness, was because I was thinking that he was beginning to talk. And by learning to talk, I talked about how you learn to lose power. Because when you don't talk, your parents have to try to figure out why you're screaming. As soon as you can talk, you have to say what's bothering you. And then you may find out that shouldn't bother you. That's called a loss of power. And then I tried to suggest those kinds of contexts for the development of virtues. Because you don't become truthful. By trying to be truthful, you find that it is constitutive of the practices that are necessary for communication as a good human being. So that was the way I tried to think about how to depict the various virtues in the different letters over 14 years.
0: Well, since you mentioned kindness, I have a question about the way that you dealt with kindness in your letter early on. In your letter on the virtue of kindness, you take time to think through the difference between being nice and being kind. And it struck me because I've thought about this often with regard to my own life and with the life of my children as my wife and I are raising them. In a world where we are often met and we often greet each other with a kind of superficial or cosmetic niceness or pleasantness, What do you see as the difference between that and what you're thinking about when you talk to Laurie about kindness?
1: Well, I think I said about kindness that he was, of course, Sam and Joe had moved to Durham where Sam was dean of the chapel here at Duke. And I said that he was going to be confronting Southern civility, which is, the most calculated form of cruelty that the world has ever discovered. Namely, how you show your superiority to the person that you're allegedly being solicitous toward as a way of manipulating them? Oh, honey, you look so peaked. Are you sure you're okay? I mean, that kind of manipulative account of how niceness works. So kindness entails a vulnerability that being nice never does. I say the great enemy of the truth of Christianity is not atheism. I wish we had interesting atheists today. The great enemy of Christianity is sentimentality. And sentimentality is the embodiment of a way of life that costs nothing. And so being nice costs nothing. It's just a general assumption that it's a good thing not to be, quote, judgmental, which usually hides from someone how judgmental they are.
0: You say, and you mentioned the poisonous power of Southern hospitality, at several points in the book, you talk about your own experiences and your own upbringing in the South, and you talk about the things that you learned about the world and society over time, the racism that was structural and systemic, like a water fountain for African Americans and a water fountain for white people. And you've had to unlearn those things over time, those racist assumptions. So what role do the Christian virtues play in this process of unlearning, of getting rid of these assumptions that society puts on you?
1: I think that the virtues draws into the narrative of what God has done for us and Jesus Christ in a way that gives us lives that we could not have anticipated unless we had acquired those virtues. The tradition, that is the Christian tradition, has located those virtues as but it's oftentimes called the cardinal virtues, prudence, temperance, courage, and justice. I have never been convinced that those four virtues are the central virtues. I think patience, for example, is every bit as important a virtue as courage. And then, of course, the question is, is, what is the relationship between the virtues? Namely, if you don't have temperance, then you probably will not be able to develop courage in an appropriate manner because of their interrelation, so on.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his work and career, as well as his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. You mentioned a moment ago that you wish that there were interesting atheists around today. I wonder if you'd just take a moment and expand on what you meant by that.
1: Well, the so-called recent atheists that have gotten so much press, the problem is that they don't know anything about Christianity, so they just think, that they're denying a god exists, but the god that they're denying exists is usually an 18th century deity that was correlative to a deism that is antithetical to the god that shows up in Jesus Christ.
0: Let me ask about that, because you sign one letter, the letter on hope, you sign it in a very particular way. You, you sign it in the hope that Christ makes possible. And as I was reading through this and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about all the suffering unfolding around us in the world. And you just mentioned this 18th century deist notion of God and that that's not the same as the Jesus Christ that we encounter today. But what is Christ's role today with all the suffering around us? Is it still worth it to talk about hope and a hope particularly grounded in Jesus Christ?
1: If you can live in that hope it seems to me our lives are clearly pointless and desperate of course what i do in that virtue of hope and the discussion of it is to bring up death and that it is the christian conviction based upon christ's resurrection that it is appropriate to hope that our lives have not been lived pointless and that we will have a role in God's continuing life after our death. So I hope what I did about hope is reflective of what Paul
0: suggested is necessary to build character. I love that answer, and uh, I, I think that the sort of notion of the whole life that you're talking about, a life that takes into account the notion of death. That's an important touchstone for anyone, but even for a young child to be aware that there's finitude involved in what we're saying. And I'm thinking about that in light of, you you say at another point that the virtues are pulled out of us by our loves. And I'm thinking now about finitude and love, and help me understand kind of how love and virtue relate to one another in your understanding.
1: There's a contemporary philosopher that says, if you would avoid tragedy, don't love. But love is to be pulled into the life of others that establishes friendships that cannot avoid having the loss of your friend anticipated through death. And therefore... Love and death are intimately related. If you want to be autonomous, don't love. Iris Murdoch says, Love is a nonviolent apprehension of the other as other. <laughs> and it's a very hard thing to apprehend the other as other because we normally apprehend the other insofar as they meet our needs and our peculiar fantasies about ourselves. So to learn to love the other with their differences determined by death is always a deep
0: challenge. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com notseenradio not seen radio. That's patreo dot notseenradio slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his work and career, as well as his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. Socrates wrestled with the notion of whether or not virtue could be taught. And I realized that what Socrates meant by virtue does not map exactly onto our modern sense of the word virtue. But I wonder how you thought about these letters. Are these letters designed to teach young Lori virtue, or do you see them operating in some other way?
1: I see them operating in a different way. I think you never become virtuous by trying to be virtuous. I mean, it's like the virtue of humility is the paradigm of this. Just to the extent that you try to be humble, you will not be a person of humility. Humility rides on the back of practices that you don't recognize that through performing the practices, you're becoming a person of humility because humility will always come by our ability to notice it after we've already acquired it. So... Humility, for example, comes from working very hard at writing an essay or learning Latin. And in the process, you discover why it is that you need to have your pride defeated because of the difficulty of the work you're doing. So what I tried to do in the letters was to direct attention to the kinds of practices that he was beginning to be involved in at the different age levels that would suggest certain kinds of virtues as naming those kinds of habitual formations through the practices.
0: Well, and I'm aware that at several points in the letters you mention a hesitancy about America and Americanness and the violence that America has been involved in. And so both for Laurie and for the readers of these letters, how do you hope that this kind of reflection, and you've, you've mentioned the mechanism is not a direct, but rather it's a process that emerges from reflection upon activities and you begin to learn humility as you're encountering struggles and those sorts of things. How do you hope that these letters will be received by particularly an American audience? What do you think that this can contribute to our national conversation?
1: Well, I hope they'll be received the way all my work wants to be received, namely to help Christians recover the fact that we're Christians before we're Americans. And I think that that identification of Christianity with being American is one of the identifications that makes it quite difficult for Christians to embody the virtues that are commensurate with discipleship to Jesus, because that discipleship has been so identified with the American set of presumptions about what it means to be
0: a good human being. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his work and career, as well as his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. So, America, over the last 12 months, has undergone a lot of self-reflection around things like gender relations and sexism and abuse And you've written about this, particularly with regard to a person that I know is a great touchstone for you, John Howard Yoder. You wrote about John Howard Yoder, his own sexual abuse and his engagement in that, and you reflected on it in light of the Me Too moment for Australia's ABC Religion and Ethics blog. It strikes me, as I was reading through this book and you line out these various 16 virtues, one of the things that I saw was missing from the list was the virtue of forgiveness, as a virtue to examine in particular. And so I wonder if you've thought about how forgiveness factors into this wider framework that you've explored by looking at these other virtues.
1: Uh, I certainly have thought about forgiveness, and let me recommend Greg Jones's book, Embodying Forgiveness, if anyone wants to follow up about how to think about forgiveness. Because Jones argues, I think, quite well that forgiveness is not just a matter of, oh, okay, it's all, I forgive you. The forgiveness requires confrontation by one who has thought to be harmed by the one that has done the harming in a way that says, these are the disciplines I think you need to undergo to free yourself from the wrongs you've done, that we can say, I forgive you. So no forgiveness without some kind of penance that's appropriate to the harm that has been done. Forgiveness is tricky as a virtue because it's really more a relationship than it is in and of itself. In that way, it's more like friendship that I treat as one of the virtues. And in the treatment of friendship, I try to suggest in my ways, friendship is not a virtue in the same way that courage or humility is a virtue. But I certainly think that forgiveness
0: about your answer just then is I see now clearly how being willing to be in a position of being forgiven arises and is dependent on things like truthfulness and patience and hope and justice and courage and faith. I I see now how all of these different virtues are allowing for the possibility of forgiveness to arise, not as a power action, but as a receipt in vulnerability. Am I hearing that correctly?
1: I wish I'd put it back clearly.
0: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the kindness in you saying that. I love also at one point when you're talking about patience, and this is in a letter written to Lori when he's four years old. You take a moment of reflection and you say, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here. You must think I'm nuts talking about patience with uh-huh. a four-year-old. That's a heavy burden to put on a child, is what you say. But then you go on and from there and you say, well, that's also a heavy burden to put on Stanley Hauerwas, the man, because, you know, I'm an impatient person, too, is what you say. And that leads me to ask, what did you, Stanley Hauerwas, the man, learn about yourself in the process of writing these letters to Lori?
1: Um, well, I learned I could do it. I think the book is quite readable and uh, it's accessible and uh, I'm an academic that I could write a book that hopefully can be read by large numbers of people who don't live in a university the way I've lived my whole life in a university. I hope that the book exhibits a kind of humanity
0: As you meditated on these virtues year to year, is there one that you think is foundational to the others, or did one emerge for you as a favorite, or do you think that they all work in tandem and each is equally important to the others?
1: I think they all more or less work in tandem, and uh, I liked uh, I liked some of the examples I was able to use in some of the virtues more than others. I thought I. And Hope, I I liked starting off telling the story of learning to see the body of Dad Haggard at Pleasant Mound Methodist Church, where the first time I encountered death by having to see the body of this elderly man who we were all told as children that we were to love, even though he showed no interest in us. And when I saw him in the open casket, they had the red sash that said, eternity is now, I I thought that story was a good story to start thinking about what it means to hope with. So I I, I like that, uh, how that virtue turned out because of the example.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his work and career as well as his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest and a professor of theology here in Chicago and That's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me, but if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. Well, you've been writing these letters now for a decade and a half to this young man, first a child, an infant, and now a young man, Laurie. What is your relationship like with Laurie now, some 16 years after starting this project?
1: because it's distant. He lives in England and I live in North Carolina. So I think of my relationship to Laurie primarily through my relationship with his mother and father. We keep up with one another weekly and I hope that I learn about Laurie and he learns about me through that intermediary because he's now a 15-year-old kid what does he want to know about someone that's soon to be 78? <laughs> um, so you, again, want to be there, and you hear stories of one another, but you don't try to force a relationship that is artificial.
0: Well, but there is a point, in fact, even in the book, where where you mention in one of the letters, hey, I realize now that this is going to be read by a wider audience, and you you talk about the way that that may affect the way that you're writing. And so I wonder, when you did make that pivot and realize that it would be read by a wider audience, did anything shift internally with you or with your thinking about this project in terms of how you were talking to Lori, Or uh, you said that you tried to keep it the same, but it must have shifted in some way. And in what way did that happen? I have no
1: doubt that it did. I don't know how to characterize that change. I'm sure it did. Indeed, the last letter on character is clearly not written to him, but written to a wider audience to suggest what I think I've been doing. But I'm sure that once I saw that this is going to be read by people other than Laurie, it changed it. But how I changed the execution of what I was doing, I'm not sure how to say.
0: That makes sense. So, you've talked about this a little bit in general earlier in the conversation, but I want to come back and ask the question in a more specific way. You've mentioned that Laurie and his family move back and forth between Durham, North Carolina and the United Kingdom, and you write at one point in the book, after they've returned to England, you're sad that they've left, but you're also glad because you're frightened that if they had stayed too long in America, Laurie and his young sister might become Americans. And I'd like to just take a moment and explore what you meant by that.
1: Well, I meant primarily that by becoming American, you think you're in control of the world. And when you are English, you know you're in a world that one time controlled the world, but no longer does, and has to learn how to deal with that. And I take it that that's a good exercise for Christians to have to undergo, that is,
0: How to live in a world which you do not control. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. We're discussing his recent book, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson. As you've been working on this project over the last decade and a half, we've talked about whether or not you think that there's a foundational virtue, but have you encountered one of these virtues that emerged as your favorite in the midst of this process?
1: Well, I've always thought patience combined with hope are central virtues for Christians. And as someone committed to nonviolence, Christians, to be nonviolent, have to be extraordinarily patient because you can never kill your adversary, but you must patiently hope that God will send the grace for us to be able to live with one another without killing. So patience names that hard reality that I must love my enemy and that at very fundamental level means I can't kill them. So patience is really
0: central for me. I love the way that you put that, and that's something that I I struggle with myself, and I think a lot about the notion of patience, and I love the combination of patience with hope. As you look back at many years of teaching and reflection on these faith-centered subjects and, and the sort of core of ethics that you've just talked about in nonviolence, I wonder if I might ask, and I ask this of many of my guests, would you feel comfortable talking about the state of your current faith? How is your faith right now?
1: i never sure about my subjectivity, but what I am sure about is my life is surrounded by Christians who make me more than I can imagine, and I praise God for that, because I cannot think what it would mean not to have friends that make me Christian in a way that I myself cannot will so friendship is central for my ability to live and to be not that far from death and so where i am today is a person who has learned to be dependent on my
0: friends as i come to the close of interviews i often ask my guests a pair of questions i ask them what still frustrates you and what still gives you hope? And so I'd like to close by asking you those questions. Dr. Stanley Hauerwas, at this point in 2018, what is still a source of frustration for you?
1: The accommodated character of Christianity in America frustrates me deeply. What gives me hope is the students that somehow find their way to my door, that raise questions, that make it clear that God hasn't given up on us yet. So it's that frustration, and yet combined with that reality of hope,
0: that uh, sustains me. Well, Dr. Stanley Hauerwas, both in my studies as a graduate student and also in popular culture, I've often encountered your work. I've occasionally encountered you in person at conferences. It is such an honor to speak with you today. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. I Thank you. We've been speaking today with Stanley Hauerwas. He's the Gilbert T. Rowe Professor Emeritus of Divinity and Law at Duke University. He was named America's Best Theologian by Time Magazine in 2001. Also in that year, he delivered the prestigious Gifford Lectures at St. Andrews in Scotland, the first American to do so in over 40 years. His book, A Community of Character Towards a Constructive Christian Social Ethic, was selected as one of the 100 most important books on religion in the the 20th century. We've been discussing today a new book of his, The Character of Virtue, Letters to a Godson, which, as the name implies, is a collection of correspondence written to a growing child over the course of 16 years. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com dot slash not seen radio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash not seen radio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio.